Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, this week we have a lot on the show, like we always do. There's a lot going on in the news. It's a deadline week, so we will be talking about all of the bills that didn't make it through the legislature at the end of the show. But to start off, we're also going to be talking about abortion access in the nation and in the state, as well as contraception. And we're also going to be talking about the massive snowpack in the Sierras right now and all the snow we got and what that means for flooding. Well, Jacob, we are now joined by our wonderful co-workers, Gabby Birenbaum and Janelle Calderon. How's it going? Hi, Joey. Happy to be here. Going good. Happy to be here, too. So we were talking about a ruling that happened in Texas, but it's a federal ruling, so it affects all of the United States. And it's affecting a pill called mifepristone, which is a pill used for abortions. And a federal judge ruled in Texas, he invalidated the FDA approval of this pill. So Gabby, let's talk a little bit about this. So as I understand it, I'm not a lawyer, nor do I wish to be. Basically, a group had sued the FDA over its approval of this drug. This drug was approved over 20 years ago. It's been on the market for over 20 years. It's been used safely and effectively. This judge, who's a Trump appointee, ruled that the FDA had, you know, gone beyond its jurisdiction in approving this drug, that the drug was not safe and that it was being used to promote political agenda. So because he's a federal judge, it could impact the whole country, issued a ruling saying that this is no longer legal for the FDA to authorize this drug. He gave a seven day sort of waiting period for the ruling to go into effect. At the same time, a judge in Washington said that Several states are compelled to keep dispensing the drug, states that have protected abortion. So these are now conflicting rulings, meaning the FDA cannot, it's impossible for them to comply with both, which likely means this is going to end up at the Supreme Court. And just to add some additional context, things could change even more by the time you hear this listener. But we are one day removed from a Fifth Circuit Court panel ruling that kept some parts of that Texas decision, but not others. And so everything is very confusing. So I guess what I want to ask is, what's the political fallout? Obviously, the policy is very noodly, and we don't have firm answers on where this is going to end up. But how are politicians reacting and sort of using this right now? Yeah, I can speak to the congressional delegation. As you imagine, Democrats are not pleased. The word that they keep using is outrageous. So Catherine Cortez Masto, who is a former attorney general, you know, knows the law has repeatedly said that the ruling is outrageous and it's not based in any sort of legal precedent that she can understand. Some Democrats in Congress, mostly progressives, AOC, Ron Wyden, who's a senator from Oregon, have basically said that the ruling is so legally dubious to the point that the federal government, the Biden administration, should just ignore it. Cortez Masto, Rosen, Susie Lee, Dean Titus, none of them have gone that far and said that they should ignore it. But they have said that they trust that the appeals process that, that the Justice Department is initiating to appeal the ruling should, you know, yield the right result, which to them would be the re reinstating the drug can go back on the market. But they're all very upset about it and have been sort of hitting the hitting the circuits of CCM was on MSNBC talking about this. They've all been, you know, keeping this top of mind for for voters. Yeah. And Catherine Cortez Mesto, like you said, was on MSNBC talking about this. And one thing that she said was that what's next, like contraception. And so that's something that's actually been going on at the Nevada legislature and a similar vein here. And so, Janelle, you have been covering that. I think Assemblywoman Selena Torres has a bill, AB 383, which is kind of talking about contraception and and other birth control access, right? Yeah. So literally just a few days before deadline, Assemblywoman Torres 
presented this bill as AB 383, which would guarantee Nevadans the right to contraception and prohibit the government from creating requirements or like limitations that would block patients' access to birth control and reproductive health services. This kind of mirrors the SJR 7, which is trying to amend the Nevada Constitution to guarantee fundamental rights to reproductive freedom. The thing is to say SJR 7 would take a longer process. It would need two legislative sessions to pass, and then it would go to the voters. Meanwhile, AB 383 would only need this legislative approval and then pass the governor. So they're just trying to get this somehow passed. And from what I understand, AB 383 includes all types of services, you know, from pregnancy to IVF, birth control, termination of pregnancy, the care for miscarriages. And there's also another bill, SB 131, which would prohibit the governor from issuing an arrest warrant for people who might be charged in another state for violating their reproductive health care laws or like if they come to Nevada and get an abortion because it's legal here, they can't be turned over, essentially. I'm also curious how this national ruling would affect Nevada if it was to stay, you know, as it was with the Texas judges ruling. I mean, does that mean that this pill is no longer accessible in Nevada as well? So I think the attorney general, Aaron Ford, and a number of Democratic attorney generals have already sort of challenged the ruling. This is going to be caught up in, you know, the legal system for some time. But yeah, even though abortion is constitutionally protected in Nevada, the access to this pill in particular, because it's, you know, regulated through the FDA, if the ruling were to stand, I believe that that means that it would not be available in all 50 states. And some states like California and New York are already stockpiling the drug, sort of ensuring that they have access to it in case it stops being produced. And, you know, that could launch further legal legal battles. Right. And just to contextualize why this drug in particular matters, right, some estimates have, you know, up to 50 percent of abortions are done using this drug. And even if, say, the FDA approval goes away, there is another drug that is used frequently called misoprostol that doctors could still prescribe, but it's less preferable than mifepristone. So, you know, it's still an open question mark. And then if mifepristone goes away, does the judiciary, especially judges appointed by Trump, then go after misoprostol using the framework that got rid of mifepristone? It's a there's there would be a lot of question marks, I guess. I think as we move into 24, the more that abortion stays in the political spotlight and the more that Republicans, whether it's, you know, judges appointed by Republicans or elected officials themselves pursue policies that continue to be unpopular at the ballot box, Democrats are going to continue to hammer them on that, I would expect. Well, and just to contextualize this, just to take a quick look at Republicans in Nevada, there is one Republican in the congressional delegation. How has Mark Amaday talked about this, if at all? He hasn't. And I think, yeah, I think that's a pretty, that kind of shows you how much, how much of a, you know, third rail this might be for Republicans that they, you know, especially if they're safe, like Amaday, they're in a safe seat. This might be something that they don't want to touch. All right. Well, I'm sure there will be a lot more coming out about this in the coming weeks. And Janelle, you'll also be following all the stuff that's happening in the state legislature in regards to contraception as well as abortion access. Thank you guys so much for being on the podcast. And yeah, we'll hop on over to the next segment now. All right, well, we are now on to the next segment where we are joined by our fantastic environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg. Daniel, hello, welcome to the podcast. You're in Carson City. <laughs> Thanks for having me. 
We have had a notably wet winter, as poor Jacob has had to endure coming from Las Vegas, which also had a wet winter, but, you know, always warmer in Vegas. And now he's up here in northern Nevada, where he's enduring the constant snow. How has all of this winter really shaped the narrative around the prolonged drought that we have had here in Nevada? So really a good question, and it's a complicated question. There's all sorts of different ways of defining drought. Drought is somewhat subjective in many ways. There's ways of looking at it in terms of water supply and reservoir levels. There's ways of looking at it in terms of ecological health. But on the whole, there's no question that the record in many places, amount of snow and precipitation that we've seen has significantly reduced drought in the state. And if you look at the U.S. drought monitor, last time I looked, only 5% of the state was in a level of drought from moderate to extreme. A lot of the state is still experiencing what the drought monitor refers to as dry conditions because you still have the impact of the, the three years of prolonged drought that we've experienced. But there's no question that the storms have made a significant impact in helping bring more water and moisture to the area. Obviously, getting a massive historic snowpack is one thing, but eventually that snow is going to go somewhere. So I guess when we talk about potential for flood risks and flood conditions, what are we talking about and, and sort of how bad would that be if we've had a historic snowpack? Does that mean historic flood conditions or are those things not necessarily one-to-one? -one? Well, like, so many things with water, it, it all depends on where you are. So if you look at the Truckee River, for example, they're, they're not expecting as much flooding on the main stem of the river. There's a possibility that some of the tributaries and creeks and things like that could flood. But on the sort of main stem of the Truckee River, you have a lot of flood control systems with the Truckee River Operating Agreement, with the way that the Bureau of Reclamation operates the dams. What we will see probably on the Truckee is a lot more water coming into Pyramid Lake, which is a really good thing and much needed for the lake and the recovery of imperiled species like the Lahontan cutthroat trout and the Kiwi. In places like the, the Walker River and the Carson River, both watersheds that have seen record snowpack this year, there is significant concerns about flooding. And there's not the reservoirs on the Walker River and Lahontan Reservoir on the Carson River are not really built for flood control in the same way that the Truckee River reservoirs are. So in both of those cases, what you're seeing right now is water managers getting water out of the reservoirs really as fast as they can because they expect to fill Lahontan Dam or Lahontan Reservoir as much as three times. The other place you're seeing a potential for flooding is in some of these valleys across Nevada. We have these closed basins. So when snow melts, it goes into the basin and sometimes it gets trapped there. In the past month, we saw a lot of flooding in Eureka. The Red Cross set, set up some resources there. You saw some significant flooding at the Yamba Shoshone tribal lands. In, in some cases, this flooding can also affect critical infrastructure, disconnect people from roads, things like that, you know, has a huge significant impact, especially in rural Nevada. You're really disconnected from a lot of services when the roads flood or when the valley floods. In Clark County, there are flood districts that have built flood infrastructure to deal with kind of the, the types of floods that both areas are 
used to seeing. So the state's division of emergency management has been closely watching the flood risk. And right now, it all depends on the timing of, of the spring melt. So I guess with a lot of the focus on the snowpack, certainly we've been looking at the Sierra, right? A lot of this impacts Colorado too and the Colorado River Basin. And I guess what I'm really curious about is Lake Mead. So does this have any impact on the extremely serious shortage conditions we were expecting at Lake Mead, you know, looking forward? The Bureau of Reclamation, which manages the Colorado River and the Colorado River dams and reservoirs like Lake Mead, is kind of analyzing that right now and crunching the numbers. In general, this was a huge snowpack for the Colorado River Basin, and it is going to provide some relief for the Colorado River. At the same time, like I mentioned, in other parts of, of Nevada and the West, there are some structural issues that still have to be dealt with, and the Bureau of Reclamation is still proceeding with its process to talk about worst-case scenarios for cutting over the next two years while negotiators on the Colorado River discuss long-term strategies to deal with the imbalance of supply and demand on the river in the face of overuse and climate change. So right now, I think everybody is very cautiously optimistic. It definitely provides some breathing room, some more time to negotiate. But, you know, like I said, the structural issues are not going to go away because of one good winter. And it should also be noted how quickly we can go from one good winter to really severe dry conditions and low reservoirs. All right. Well, on that note, we will we will keep an eye on the water as we move into the springtime. Hopefully it starts warming up a little bit more as so we can enjoy the outdoors and enjoy all of that extra water that we've got flowing through Nevada. So Daniel, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Alrighty, well, it's that time of the podcast. We are joined by the legislative team, Sands Jacob. Jacob is off taking a vacation, that lazy bum that we recorded the intro and outro earlier this week. But he was there for the deadline. He is now off, but we do have Sean and Tabitha here to talk about that deadline day last week. So we talked about a deadline day quite recently, actually. So what is this next deadline day? Hey, Joey. So this is basically the deadline for bills to pass out of their first committee in the House that they were introduced in. Basically, you know, when a bill is introduced, it's referred to a committee. And so this is kind of just, you know, you got to get out of committee. You got to keep advancing along. If you're not out of committee by Friday, then you're dead. Unless you have an exemption or, you know, you decide to your bill dies. Got it. Got it. And so and the committees, there's a lot of different committees, but basically that's kind of the the second step. It's the the second step show. I mean, the bill has to get introduced first, and that's the deadline that we had at the end of March. And so the next deadline, bills will have to pass out of their first house entirely with a vote from the entire assembly or Senate before they then go over to the other house to go through the same exact process. And so obviously, every time there's a deadline, a lot of bills either don't get heard or or, or, or die. How many bills do we have left right now? Probably in the range of about 700, Joey. I know right now it looks like about 240 that had died at this past deadline. Um, a lot of those bills that are still left alive, though, they might have been declared exempt because they carry some kind of financial impact. And so they're basically moved over to the money committees, Senate Finance, Assembly Ways and Means. And now that they're there, they won't necessarily even get a hearing, but they are exempt. And so what were those big bills that that died? Well, I think one of them 
that we were watching was Assembly Bill 108. And that was a bill that would have basically approved Nevada to join the nurse licensure compact. So every single union sort of joined forces and said, do not let this bill advance. It had strong opposition from the unions. However, most other members of the healthcare industry said this could be really helpful. So that died. That was a significant one. There was a medical malpractice bill that died, but another one that advanced. So we'll see how it will be kind of modified moving forward. A lot of Republican supported measures like bills seeking voter ID, those are kind of just left behind by Democrats, which is something that we see commonly in this legislature is bills that come from the minority party stand a a much tougher test of survival. Another thing that we saw die was a bill that actually got its first hearing on Friday, a big cannabis bill that was put together by a working group that came at the request of Governor Lombardo. This bill came up for a first hearing Friday and then later in the day was indefinitely postponed. The committee voted to, to do that, basically a weird parliamentary procedural motion that pretty much leaves the bill dead. And so what about the big bills that actually made it through? What were things that you were paying attention to that, you know, are going to be kind of the big talking points? I think what's important to note, there are a lot of big bills that did make it through unamended. But when the bill survives the deadline, they're often amended to kind of take the teeth out of them, right? So we had a measure that went forward that was would have basically decriminalized magic mushrooms. And that was amended down to a study. However, one that we didn't really see have the teeth taken out of it was the culinary rent control bill. And so that one would impose maximum cap of 5% on rent increases for existing tenants. And so that's one that I think a lot of people were surprised that it advanced. Another one that advanced without a committee recommendation was a bill that would remove the cleaning requirements that were put in place for the COVID pandemic. So we'll see how that one goes. And and there was strong opposition from the culinary union, strong support from the gaming industries that say that those requirements are kind of onerous. Some other stuff that we saw passed. I know you're watching these closely, a, a pair of fentanyl bills, Joey, one from Attorney General Aaron Ford and another from Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro that basically are working in tandem to try to tackle the issue of fentanyl and basically increasing felony penalties for those trafficking the drug. Um, We also saw another big ENSHE bill that was watered down into a study. So I I think we'll see a lot of that probably over the the next, how much time we have here, month and a half or so, where you're going to see a lot of big concepts that, you know, maybe legislative leaders tell, tell their members, hey, this is, you know, we can't go this far at this point. Let's study this issue further. And basically water down what the the policy proposals are. Well, and I think the last one that really was drawing my attention was a bill that would change drug pricing here in Nevada and base it off of whatever Medicare negotiated drug price it was. So if Medicare negotiates a drug price at $35, it wouldn't just be for all people on Medicare, it would be for the entire state. So that one was pretty contentious. I guess to to wrap up, is there anything else that you guys are paying attention to that, you know, has kind of caught your interest that the public needs to know that you got to tell the people? You know, I'd say there's a lot that's maybe not not quite definitive yet, Joey, that I'm watching and waiting for. You know, we kind of have heard this swirl about the Oakland Athletics and their possible move to Las Vegas. Um, just the past weekend before we were recording this, Reggie Jackson basically said the A's are, are not here to stay in Oakland. So their, their future in Oakland right now is, is not looking so hot. And also where we're expecting a big Envy Energy bill still to come forward this session, not been introduced in any manner yet. I think from what I understand, this bill has been waved through or could be introduced as an emergency measure, but we could still see some pretty big energy 
bills coming forward this session. And then I think on my end, it's just, you know, nothing's ever really truly dead. So like I said, watching out for amendments and changes. And, you know, we, we also have to realize that, you know, you do have a Republican governor. So if Democrats want to make sure that bills don't get vetoed, they either have to convince Senate Republicans to sign off on their legislation or they have to convince the governor to sign off on their legislation. So, I mean, we could see a lot of negotiations. We could see a lot of trades. We could also just see them pass a bunch of legislation and say, "Okay, this is now on the governor. All right. Well, as we wait and see, we will have more stories for you at the NevadaIndependent.com as we continue to report in and around the legislative building as well as everywhere else in Nevada. So Sean Galanka, Tabitha Mueller, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Gabby Berenbaum, Janelle Calderon, Daniel Rothberg, Tabitha Mueller, and Sean Galanka for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and my lovely co-host, Jacob Solis. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at the Our theme song is from Emily Pratt. We have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.